life's most beautiful you know element is the fact that it turns left and right before it even asks you feel stuck with work press pause and listen in talk human to me a podcast for entrepreneurs with nothing about entrepreneurship in our show founders take a break and talk to us about their identity beyond their company I'm Jeff Shao, your host for today. In this episode, supported by The Abstract and Maori Audio, I talk with Mohamed Madaris, founder of Abe's Eats and TED resident and speaker. But what he does is only part of who he is. How did a man passing out at a health clinic he volunteered at inspire him to study public health? And how did he respond after 9-11 when his middle school classmates looked at him whenever the news came on. Grab a seat and kick back while our guest reflects and reconnects with the personal experiences and roots that created a foundation for their values, philosophies, and outlook on humans. We start each episode with the same question. What about humans strikes you the most? Persistence. It is just incredible for me to see so many people at every point in human history just get back up. Lately, I mean, seeing Syrian refugees, you know, transform their lives for the safety of their family and friends. You know, not not even that extreme, right? Every day, some kid somewhere is getting bullied. Next morning, they wake up. They decide to still go to school. They still you know, work their way to becoming who they want to be and at the same time turning back around and fixing a problem that they saw in their life. That to me is one of the most extraordinary parts about seeing other humans and then also then realizing, wow, that's I, I can do that too, you know, because I'm a human too. That persistence, that hustle, whatever you want to call it, I don't, I don't know what it's called, but it is the most beautiful scariest even thing about us is that part of our conscious subconscious you know i have no idea but the everyday seeing that makes me happy makes me cry and that's that's what i love most you're kind of creating this dichotomy of happiness and sadness and also that it can be scary and extremely you know elating and you also mentioned when you see syrian refugees being met with an opposing force of hate of discrimination there's also persistence on that side is that what you're talking about when you're talking about that scariness yeah i mean you know there's there's always going to be opposing views and regarding every situation i guess the reason why i highlight syrian refugees is because to me syrian refugees right now it's those you know last last moments of the Malcolm X movie where everybody get, just gets up and says, I am Malcolm X, I am Malcolm X. And, you know, we are the Syrian refugees. And not just the Syrian refugees, the people who are trying to cross different borders. We're all people. We all want the same exact things. Maybe in different shapes and colors, but that's a life of health and happiness. And sure, it comes in you know little different forms here and there, but for the most part, safety and, and security is is high up there, you know, in the in the priorities. I think when we see the most highlighted types of like 
the persistence that I was talking about, a lot of times it's in those most extreme cases. So those are the Syrian refugees, those are the kids, you know, being bullied, those are the kids who are put in a situation where it's in front of them, it's a moment of conflict in some form. And a lot of times from the outside looking in, we'll turn that into a very black or white situation and not think about the fact that we constantly, every day, live in nuance. And if we accept this nuance and put ourselves in a conversation to, you know, listen and then react, which is, I've realized, is becoming more and more rare, we'll get to a better final product. All of this is interconnected. And I think for us, under this, this house called empathy, under this lifestyle that we want to live to be better people, we have to begin to realize that each of us have had such vastly different upbringings. We believe in such, you know, crazy different traditions and cultures and religions. Yet there is that foundation of, look, I just want to be me. And I want to be me in a safe space. You know, I want to have a place to call home. I want to have a series of friends and family to call community. Every so often I want to, you know, maybe go see a nice little DJ or, you know, a museum. <laughs> and that's, to me, like, it's simple. But then when people come and decide to take without asking, to label without a second thought, to push and pull because they've faced conflict and they didn't know how to bring closure into their life or they didn't know how to respond to it appropriately. There's there's a lot that I'm, I'm just like, wow, all right, we're going to have to deal with this. But the only way we can deal with this is by accepting the fact that, you know, there's a certain set of values. We need those things. There's a certain set of, a certain level of respect that we need to have for people of, you know, different backgrounds and whatnot. And then how can we mush it all together? We just went zero to 100. <laughs> um, do you think this is something you've developed over the latter half of your life? Or is this something that you grew up with? Is this something that your parents instilled in you? Tell me about your life growing up. My childhood years, you know, we lived in Maryland, Virginia. We moved around New York, New Jersey. I lived in Iran for a little bit. Actually, what I remember most of my childhood, if we're thinking about like the five, six, seven, eight-year-old years, was my time in Iran. Amazing years. And I think that set a roadmap, if you will, of realizing that it's not what you think. You know, people have certain perceptions of Iran, of the Middle East, of Northern Africa, of Southern Africa. And then you go and you're like, wow, everyone was wrong. <laughs> and everybody's super cool here. And the food is amazing. And the the mountains are as beautiful. And why do people constantly talk about a desert when everything is green and there's water? And I think if there was anything that taught me about, that, that then benefited me later on in life was becoming a little bit more critical and kind of doing some research after what anybody would say. And and that's really helped me kind of see things uh, and hear things a little bit more clearer from, from the source as opposed to just, you know, 
taking in words by others and making assumptions. And especially in this day and age, I'm trying to like support really good journalism and trying to understand the quote-unquote rules around journalism. And it's at stake right now, right? You know, we can put quotes around facts and make everything kind of chaos. But fortunately, we were traveling a bunch and seeing the things that I saw, it really, it, it helped me a lot in, uh, in unfolding what I like to think is like, just what's the real picture? You know, what's, what's really going on? Let's take a break. Also, a quick word about one of our supporters. So we don't do canned ad spots at Talk Human to Me. We want to get to know the humans behind the sponsors we work with. I'm going to give Lala Openi a quick call, the co-founder and creative director of The Abstract. Hello? Hey, Lala, this is Jeff. So I wanted our listeners to get to know you and your company a bit better. What value does your company have that personally means a lot to you? With the abstract, our practice is essentially healing and dealing, sharing and caring. Um, This personally means a lot to me because it demystifies mental health work and reminds me that we're all living through the same human condition together. Like none of us lives in a bubble. And in my own journey to healing, it's been a give and take, ebb and flow, rest and recovery, coping and resiliency. Um, It's definitely hard work, but I've learned that sometimes the most profound work I can do is, is to keep things simple. Take some deep breaths. Remember that I love and accept myself and my emotions as they are. There's enough organized chaos and disconnect that we deal with on a day-to-day. Healing and dealing and sharing and caring is not only important, it's revolutionary. Now, back to the conversation. There's a development within you that's allowed you to listen better to have more of that compassion, empathy, and just genuine curiosity to pause and give space to someone to express themselves without judgment. What do you feel are little practices that you have to constantly remind yourself to be able to keep that up? Because I'm sure that you, at moments, are going to come across something that just completely pisses you off and Mm -hmm. you want to just go straight into a battle of words. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't give myself too much credit. (laughs) That's a really good question. So my parents are, my parents are Muslim. They come from Iran. They have a very stereotypical, which is sad to say, but a very stereotypical Iranian story in the sense that, you know, they were affected by the 1979 revolution in Iran so a lot of people don't know that the the relationship between U.S. and Iran was um, so strong that the way Iran was perceived in the early half of the 70s and even the 60s was very much, you know, in the same way you would want to go to Sicily or, you know, but then the revolution happened. And I'm not going to say whether the revolution was good or bad because, gosh, people, you know, those are great dinner conversations that go into the next day's brunch (laughs) but no matter what people were were affected and my parents were one of those people and so were hundreds of thousands of other iranians who were in transit who were 
in the United States who were in Iran and now growing up with parents who have been affected in this way and in this way meaning something out of their control you're then preached a certain philosophy of you know safety and security of you know this is what we were doing just living our lives and this is what we realized came out on the other side still intact and that's why the joke goes with a lot of Asian parents, you know, become a doctor, become a lawyer, become an engineer, become, you know, and, and, and in that pace, right? Like, become a doctor, become a lawyer, become a, you know, like, and, you know, and then you just get exhausted. It's just like, okay, but what about a public health practitioner? What is that, doctor, lawyer? I was like, okay, but what about like a digital marketing, you know, specialist in a really big tech company? Doctor, lawyer, okay got it and you know you can choose to live by those words or, or not and define your own identity and then there's that whole philosophy right like how do you then create your own identity when your parents have such strong identities for you waiting there when you turn 18 when you turn 22 when you turn 30 when you turn 35 when you turn 40 when you turn 50 like it's literally just planned out for you and of course that's not how life works we know that Life's most beautiful, you know, element is the fact that it turns left and right before it even asks you. And it's a it's a love-hate-love relationship, you know, because I didn't become a doctor, but I understood why they wanted me to become a doctor. I didn't become an engineer, but I understood why. They wanted me to become an engineer. And I took those things and I applied it into the profession that I do now. And these are the principles that I think every every temple lives by. And, I, and when I say temple, I don't mean institutionalized religion. I mean, you know, your internal temple, your internal compass. That, you know, that is, what does it mean to be a good person, right? What does it mean to think outside of yourself and offer your your talents and your expertise to the people around you? Because you don't just take, you give. And it needs to be a cycle. A lot of times people just give and they burn out in the same way a lot of people just take. So living in a household that went through that type of experience and had to start fresh because when a revolution is happening, money freezes. When a revolution is happening, you don't see people for years. You know, when a revolution is happening, you have to begin thinking about how do I live the rest of my life with the way it is now? Because you don't know. You don't know how it's going to be the next day or the next year. That type of sensitive thought, walking on eggshells, if you will, then leaves you to begin to attach yourself to the most immediate of the safety, security, the happiness. And so looking from 30,000 feet away at my at my parents or at other Iranian Americans who have lived this type of experience, that means quickly bundling together, building that community, not in a way that you want to with all the resources in the world, but that you have to, to be able to just live. And so maybe that goes back to the Syrian refugees. Maybe that goes back to, you know, the the kid wherever in America who's being bullied 
And a lot of us, we, we have these types of experience, but in very different forms. And it's just how do we come out on the other side learning from these these matters and turn them into lessons so that we can just be better people. So that's kind of seeing that growing up. And then there's also, there's the Iranian American identity, of course. Then there's the Muslim American identity, of course. You know, for, for a lot of Muslims, actually, who are of Iranian descent, they don't have a name as upfront as mine. My name is Muhammad. And when you're within the Iranian community, Iranian names are more associated to Zoroastrianism or the Persian cultural and traditional stories. Sohrab, you know, Daryush, you know, Siruz, you know, like you'll you'll have you'll you'll have, you know, Uncle Reza and, and you know, Uncle Muhammad in there somewhere, you know. But it was interesting growing up pre and post nine eleven in the middle school years with a name like like Muhammad. It definitely sets boundaries for you before you can say a word. And funny enough, I mean, you know, I know this is a podcast, but you can't see my skin color and whatnot. I have the luxury, the privilege to look Brazilian one day and Greek the next. So, you know, so it's really, it's the name that suddenly puts us in the box. And experiencing that in middle school was one of the most fascinating personal experiments that I could have asked for. Because I knew, like, okay, I'm living in a suburb in New Jersey. Nothing's really going to happen. But then shit went down. And what I mean by shit went down was, like, yeah, my mother got punched in a mall. And my head got hit against the concrete. And we weren't too sure if the university that my sister was going to was going to be safe. She experienced 9-11 a little bit differently. The women in our household were wearing hijab. And so that experience also made me realize that whether I like it or not, that this is how society is going to perceive me. And for the most part, I actually really enjoyed it. It was like a cool challenge, if you will. It built character. (laughs) And what I mean by that is we used to have, Jeff, did you have something called Channel One in your school? It was, it's kind of like a daily news agency that would come on during homeroom and as one of the officers of the student body, I used to be part of the you know PA system. Hey, good morning. You know, let's do the salute. I don't know. <laughs> I would put people to sleep at home. But yeah, we would have something called Channel One News, and I'm pretty sure it's still going on for certain certain public school systems, which is it's great. It keeps kids up to date on news, and it was it was a good source of information for you when you're in like middle school high school to just watch for the for 15 minutes of homeroom because also homeroom was whack without it people would be throwing stuff at each other people would be like you know going crazy so that kind of kept us in line but being in middle school every day the news would be about 9-11 and it would be about afghanistan and it would be about pakistan and it would be about any other middle eastern country that they want to associate anything bad with and so with a name like Muhammad, you would then hear your name associated to all these things that you didn't want to associate to every single morning. And, and the thing is, you know, when you're, when you're in elementary school or middle school, you know, there's this habit of us as children. Let's say the teacher says, hey, we got to do an art project. Then what happens? Every single kid looks at the kid who's like really good at art, right? Or like, oh, we got to do this, like, writing, whatever, research project. And then every single kid looks at, like, that one kid. Because they all want to, like, recruit that one kid to, like, 
do most of the the legwork, right? But then Channel One News would come on, and then it would be so and so terrorist, and like his middle name was like Mama, or his last name, or whatever. I mean, it's the most popular name in the world. All right, come me some slack here, and like everybody would look to me, just like waiting for my reaction, waiting for like what you know, as if like I should apologize or as if I should I don't know you know what what it was but early in those years it made me think you know what like if if 30 people in my class right now are going to associate my name to this type of behavior then I need to counter that and I began taking it as a sense of like responsibility now should I do I have to of course not but it was kind of like fun if you will like the fact that I can, in fact, change these kids' perceptions and thoughts about not just the name, but about a whole religion, a whole culture, different traditions. And so over the next three years, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, like ran for student body president and like, you know, use my drawing skills to like make fun posters and you know supported all the things that i believed in which were at first kind of odd for people because wait a second isn't your name isn't your culture isn't your faith associated to this that i see i don't want to take too much credit but it was nice to offer an alternative if you will of don't put anyone in one group and then, you know, I, I was a, like, it was justified to think that way and that it was kind of working, if you will, you know, this agent of trying to spread happiness and trying to reduce the bigotry that was happening post 9-11 anyway. It was justified when, like, I won my elections. And that was, you know, that was kind of like the Muslim American identity. It's about turning the bad into the good. You know, in the same way, like, the Iranian American identity was seeing this struggle and in this case, the struggle of mobility that we can relate back to the Syrian refugees. I mean, once you are displaced, man, you you got a lot of luggage to carry. Like, and I'm not talking about the physical, I'm talking about the emotional kind, right? Like when people say, it's nice to just settle down and to unpack, more and more I'm realizing it's not about, it's not about actually like putting your clothes up and folding it. It's about like the shit on your shoulders, Gosh, that goes for a lot of us, man. You know, because each of us, we're all, we're all, we're all tackling something. We're all fighting with something. And how can we go from fighting to to being at peace with ourselves? Let's take a break. Also, a quick word about one of our supporters. So we don't do canned ad spots that talk human to me. We want to get to know the humans behind the sponsors that we work with. I'm going to give Mauricio Escamilla a quick call, the founder and executive creator of Maori Audio, a full-service audio, sound design, and music production studio based in Ridgewood, Queens, New York. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mauricio. So I wanted our listeners to get to know you and your company a bit better. What core value of Maori Audio personally means a lot to you? Maori Audio is the culmination of my love for music, sound, and expressive production. Drawn to music and sound at a young age, I decided to focus on the science of it all, 
how to capture and truly make sound as emotive and powerful as it needs to be in order to fully move and impact the viewer and listener. A core value would be working with those whose voice needs to be amplified. I've had the pleasure of working with many independent artists, producers, and filmmakers to make their production as strong as it can be. Amplifying the voice of the voiceless, specifically marginalized people, is a big part of my work. And it brings me joy and fulfillment as a person of color from immigrant parents to be able to do that. Now, back to the conversation. And then going off to college, it was then kind of a repeat of these lessons, but in different, in different settings. So I got to Baltimore. You know, Baltimore is seen as this place that's all these vacant homes. There's 40,000 vacant homes in Baltimore. There's seven, 8,000 homeless people in Baltimore. There's, you know, the HIV AIDS rate of Baltimore is equivalent to this African country. It's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. It's so bad, it's so bad, it's so bad, it's so bad. And you're just, you can either take that all in or you can take a bus to East Baltimore and take a bus to West Baltimore and see people for who they are and realize they don't, see themselves as HIV positive. They don't see themselves as homeless. They don't see themselves as these titles that everybody else has put on them. But they see themselves as a really good brother, as a teacher, as you know, a firefighter who has to do something else on the side because of a sick family member. And these identities that are all for making a better tomorrow for themselves and for the people that they love. And it sounds exactly like that refugee crossing the border. Because the reality is if you, you know, empathy to its, to its truest definition, truest form to me is when you're wearing the other person's shoes. Like to understand day to day of being homeless, you have to do exactly what they've done to really get it. And it's, it's tough, but... You have to work as close as possible in that direction. Early on in college, I was like a volunteer at this health clinic and somebody walked in with a toothache and I was just like, all right, like, let me just write you down toothache, you know, let's wait for the doctor. Me being like 18 and stupid. And the guy like passed out out of pain and like, oh my God, we got to, oh, yeah. And me not understanding the context of where this guy's coming from. How long has he had that toothache? Where did that toothache originate from? What are the institutions that have failed him? And it's just a toothache. But that that's something that has been not taken care of for years. And it's not a dentist. It's not just the dentist. It is so many things. It is our school system. It is, you know, the social service system. It is, you know, just the infrastructure to get him from his home to the clinic. It is, the list goes on. And that's ultimately the reason why I studied public health. It was like, how do I connect those dots as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible, and be able to see with as much empathy as possible? That was the, the goal, and that continues to be the goal you know, in regards to persistence and whatnot, on the good side, when you then have everything for yourself and you're able to live the life that you want, then comes curiosity. The struggle that we go through to get to that curiosity, which is when we have that infrastructure to be who we want to be. And I'm, you know, I'm fortunate now. You know, I'm lucky. 
in the sense that I have a community of friends. I have a family that I get to worry about. That's 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 a privilege. I get to worry about a family, you know, because I have a family. And as a result, my job, I choose, I, I choose to be up and down with the life of entrepreneurship, but because I want the curiosity to go in and out and learn all these different things. This year was a lot of transitions. I moved from California to New York, talking about mobility, talking about baggage, like, you know, I did it myself. And I moved from, I, I was, you know, hashtag van life. And I miss my van every day. I may cry. It's a 1979. Fuel injected. VW bus. Riviera pop top. Automatic. It's as rare as it gets. All German parts. You know, this is 1979. VW bus. T2. So there was the T1. The bug. Some people call it the beetle. Some people call it like the cutest car in the world. But the van is the T2. And from like the 19, late 1950s until 1979, this is the last model. It's a piece of art. I got to drive Van Gogh's Starry Night. That's what it feels like, at least. And just like a beautiful piece of artwork, you have to share it to the world. You know, So I would drive it everywhere. It wouldn't be you in the garage. You are right now. It wouldn't be in the garage. No, it's, 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 guys, it's, it's just, let's take a moment. But yeah, went up and down the coast with that thing, every inch of one, one one, five. And it was a little bit more affordable than paying rent, but not by much because van life is like a thing. And I got to take my home everywhere. You know, I would live off of Ocean Drive in San Diego. And my friend was like two blocks away, you know, and I would park there and I'd, I'd, go to sleep and I'd wake up to the sound of the ocean. And that was such a just amazing way of transitioning from a crazy office with no windows. The most beautiful sunsets I've seen, one, Zagreb, Croatia, and San Diego, California. San Diego sunsets are just insane. And so here I am just like walking down the beach and I'm just like, man, Every, I should not be missing any sunsets. And I was just like, all right, every day from now on, jump in the water for sunrise and sunset. And for those of you who surf, the easiest way to like shed a tear for the beauty of this world is <laughs> to be on your surfboard in the water, just like 30, 40 feet out, whatever. Enough where it's just, you're looking back and people are small, right? On shore and... You're looking in front of you and, and you, all you see is the ocean. And when the sun comes up or down, the rays just covering the water around you. And because and, you just, you know, you're, you're, you're dripping, you know, then just the, the sun's rays start, start painting on you. I don't, I don't know how to describe that feeling. I can't really put it to words. And realizing that every day, wow, I'm going to appreciate this every single time. Because it's like, dude, who, who else can do this right now? So talking with our guests, I noticed certain emotions come up, not just in them, but also in other founders. This got me curious about the psychology and science behind that. I called up visiting expert 
Dr. Jacqueline Johnson, a doctorate of psychology who works with professionals of color, primarily black women, to help them get unstuck in life and chart a path towards attaining a life of meaning, value, and purpose. You can find more info about her at theblackgirldoctor.com backslash dr-j. So Dr. Johnson's research draws upon the unique experiences of Black women who often shift or alter aspects of their identity based on the context in which they sit at any given time and the ways in which they learn to adapt to survive and thrive despite challenges faced. So she can definitely drop some knowledge on us. Hello? Hey, Dr. J. This is Jeff. I got a question for you. Persistence is something we see in many entrepreneurs, but it's also a strength we see in people that experience really tough environments, from hate and racism to xenophobia. What's happening psychologically that influences our decisions of how we address and react to these situations? For example, some some people feel driven to overcome the challenge, and some people feel resigned and give up. I'd love to get your expert insight into that. Great question, Jeff. So before I get started, I always like to define a concept, right, to make sure that we're all on the same page of what we're referring to. And so um, according to the American Psychological Association, persistence is defined as the quality or state of maintaining a course of action or keeping at a task and finishing it despite the obstacles that we experience, such as opposition or discouragement. And so what we know is that there seems to be this direct link between persistence and the degree of meaning that a thing has for you. And so the entrepreneurs who are listening and other folks who may be listening, you have to answer this question for yourself of of why bother to do what you're doing? Uh, Why pursue this thing? that is really meaningful to you? And why is it even meaningful to you? And so a lot of times I like to ask clients, what's your why for doing what what you're doing? And so in order to have persistence, all of us have to wrestle with that question and have to have a really good answer that holds up even when our inner cynic, right, rises up to kind of say, oh, that's stupid or that's dumb or or, that doesn't matter. So we really have to be clear and firm on why this matters. And then the other thing is persistence requires things like discipline. So really what discipline is, is concentrated effort that's necessary to get the work done. And so that means we have to delay gratification. We have to practice self-control and self-regulation. So if your why isn't strong, it's really easy to talk yourself out of something and to not persist, especially when things get really hard. And what we found is people who do persist, they have what we call a growth mindset. It's kind of this innate desire and passion to want to grow. You want to keep learning. You're fascinated and you're curious about the world around you. And that leads to the commitment to really persist, even though you may not be great at it at the beginning or even though you may have failure in the beginning. But that doesn't define people who persist. They don't see it as a character flaw, but something that's just a part of the process. And so that really requires a healthy sense of self. You have to have this eternal belief that you can achieve what you want and that there is some reward on the other side of your persistence. And the last thing I want to say before I wrap up is we also talk about systemic challenges, right? So I I think a lot of times when we talk about persistence, 
we keep it at the individual level and we ignore that there are factors in place that really make it difficult for some oppressed groups to thrive and to persist. And there's bias in the belief that if I just persist enough, if I just work hard enough, I can achieve whatever I want to achieve. And for many people, BIPOC and women and other minority groups, that's not the reality. For every one person who makes it out of a really oppressive situation, there are many others with the same amount of talent and potential, but that potential never gets realized because of these forces that are at play. And so I just really want to make a note to to say that and to acknowledge that, you know, it's not just about individual effort all the time. And then persistence is really compartmentalized, right? I can be really committed (laughs) to pursuing my career. And if the weather's two degrees cold, I will not persist in my value to get healthy. And I think sometimes we think either you have persistence or you don't, but it's really about what area that you want to be persisting in and, and that can kind of change. I hope this was something that was helpful to someone and helps you to keep going and encourages you to keep going when when it gets hard and know that it's worth it and, and finding your why, why it's worth it to you. Thank you for the awesome conversation. I hope what we've talked about has sparked some new thoughts for our listeners to reflect on. We end each episode with this question. Ultimately, what's the point of all of this? Something that I kind of just live by. It's hard to live by. You know, it, 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 there's definitely a level, of, a level of privilege even in saying this. But it's like, you know, if, if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. And, and no doubt we have to put ourselves in situations that we don't want to. So many times, every day. But, you know, keeping what the end result is in hand, it makes, you know, those tasks a little bit easier. There were times where, not even just crazy stories, but crazy, like, friendships that have come out of just putting yourself in a situation, doing little things to make it make it good for you, where people come in, and then you, you, you have to, like, see how that unfolds. And that's kind of the curiosity element that is privilege. It's so crucial. And you could have that in everything. Because this is what it's all about. A little bit of optimism. Sprinkle that in with just being grateful for the people around you. And just like so many people have said this in the past. Hey, if you don't like something, you know, make an effort to make it better for tomorrow. Find fully curated experiences of all of our episodes at talkhumantome.com backslash episodes. Also, take a look at the work and causes our guests and visiting experts deeply care about at talkhumantome.com backslash discover. We like working with sponsors that fundamentally care about helping people reflect and reconnect. Our sponsors are offering special treats to our fans directly in the show notes or at talkhumantome.com backslash sponsors. This show takes a dedicated squad. Shoutouts to designer Lala Openi for our show's artwork and to audio engineer Mauricio Escamilla for his audio wizardry. Please check out their companies and creations in the show notes or at talkhumantome.com backslash squad. And finally, infinite love to our advisors, mentors, friends, and family. You 
make our existence and our ability to keep going possible. Be well, be curious, practice empathy, and stay human. <laughs>